Every summer we do a series uh, at Murray Hills called At the Movies, where we take popular movies and use them to discuss spiritual themes. And, and this year we've had a heavy emphasis on movies based upon a true story. Uh, four out of the five films have been true stories. And when you research what actually happened in the movie versus what actually happened in real life, uh, these films have been surprisingly accurate. Most of what happened in this movie, if you saw it, most of what happened in this movie happened in real life. And it's a story you probably had never heard of before. But this one was called Operation Mincemeat. Here's a little bit about it. In five weeks, 100,000 British forces will strike Sicily's southern shore. Unfortunately, the Nazis know of our intentions. So we're going to play a humiliating trick on Hitler. <laughs> we have to convince Germany that our target is Greece. The plan begins in Spain, where a corpse will wash up on shore bearing classified letters. A corpse carrying fake documents. Given the fascist network there, we could quite literally float the documents right into enemy hands. Prime Minister, that's too big a risk. The fate of the world is at stake. The plan is highly implausible. So when can it be ready? Well, what say we start with the easy part and find ourselves a corpse? The thing is, the Germans have scrutinized every detail of our fallen man. Where are his legs? He must be as real as you or I. He would carry a letter from his wife professing her deep love for him. Very good. And he would carry her photograph. My contribution to the mission for a seat at the table. Although, what if the autopsy reveals he didn't die of drowning? Or if the briefcase is returned to us without the Germans seeing its contents? Charles, why on earth do you keep poking holes in our plan? I'm preemptively poking. Success depends on guiding the papers into Hitler's hands. The nightmare marching this way is only too real. And the Spanish won't let the Germans anywhere near our briefcase. We are in the dark. If the enemy is waiting for us on those beaches, history herself will avert our eyes from the slaughter. I may vomit. I may vomit with you. In stories of war, there is that which is seen and that which is hidden. In God's name, Fleming, what are you writing? Spy story. In the hidden war, the truth is protected by a bodyguard of lies. Its soldiers unseen pray, its heroes unsung. This is our war. So this story takes place in 1942 and 1943, and it's about an elaborate ploy that the British Secret Intelligence Service in World War II, uh, MI5, con concocted this elaborate ploy to fool Nazi Germany into thinking that they were going to invade the coast of Greece instead of the intended target, which was the coast of Sicily. And as you heard in the trailer, it involved a plot that actually Ian Fleming came up with, or it was, it was inspired by something that Ian Fleming wrote in uh, a document called The Trout Memo, and Ian Fleming was the writer of the James Bond spy novels. He was actually a British serv uh, Secret Service uh, agent in the Civil War, <laughs> World War II, <laughs> not the Civil War. <laughs> oh, 
This week I led a trip uh, south into Montgomery and, and Birmingham and Tuskegee and Selma, and I spent two days looking at like civil rights and civil war history, so all my, all my dates are getting confused here. But in World War II, Ian Fleming was actually a secret intelligent officer, and uh, he came up with this idea that was proposed to uh, the, the directors of MI5, and it was to steal a body. They stole a body with the help of a coroner from a local morgue. They concocted this elaborate backstory, gave him a fake identity as a Royal Marine officer, William Martin, Captain William Martin. They planted fake top secret documents on him. They dumped the body off the coast of Spain with hopes that the Nazis would somehow get possession of the documents and that they would land in military command and fool them into thinking that they were going to invade Greece instead of Sicily. Uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Nazi spies did intercept the documents. They took photographs of the documents before they returned it to the British, and the photographs ended up on the desk of Adolf Hitler. And in response, Hitler uh, dispatched uh, ships, artillery, and an entire panzer division of 90,000 troops to protect the coast of Greece. So on July 10th of 1943, uh, the Allies invaded the coast of Sicily with minimal resistance, uh, far fewer casualties than they expected, and it became a major turning point in the war. Um, Mussolini was captured thereafter, and it's, it's one of the major... Most people look at the, the biggest turning point of the war was D-Day, because that's the one that was known. But this actually was one of the... Also a major turning points in the war that a lot of people don't know about. And it is a fascinating story, and it is a fascinating history. And I did not know about it until the movie. I, I had no idea of what had happened to the movie. And uh, yes, of course, I researched, you know, like what parts were true and what parts weren't. They had a few dramatizations in here, but not many. Um, most of it happened the way that it is portrayed. And the British government actually didn't recognize it, didn't acknowledge that Gwendolyn Michael, he was a homeless man, who had killed himself. That was who they, the, the corpse they used was Gwendolyn Michael. He was buried with full military honors as Captain William Martin in Spain, complete with made-up parents and a made-up wife. And it stayed that way on his tombstone until 1998. In 1998, the British government finally acknowledged that uh, William Martin was actually Gwendolyn Michael, and they added a... a, tr a postscript at the bottom of his tombstone saying that he served as Major William Martin. Now, it's, it's all very interesting history, and it's a, it's a great story, and it's a great movie if you like this kind of movie. Uh, it's, it's very interesting, but the question is, what was the point? I'm not talking about what was the point of the story, but what is the point, what part of this movie will preach? Because the purpose of At The Movies is to, to, to look at, you know, themes within movies and go, oh, man, that'll preach. This, this right here will preach. So the question is kind of what is the moral of the story? What is the, what is the theme that will, you know, dive us into the scriptures here? Um, what, what is the spiritual or the deeper theme within this film? And for me, this one has been interesting in, in this series. Uh, this one was less about what's the moral of the story and more about a question of morals. And these films this, this year have 
I've been asking more questions than I have, you know, like, oh, there's a good theme and that's inspiring, that kind of thing. The question in this film is simply this. Is it ever right to do the wrong thing? Is it, is it ever okay to lie? Because this is a story about an elaborate lie that was told. They stole a body, they purposefully deceived um, thousands, if not millions of people. They lied all throughout the movie. So is it ever okay to lie? Is it ever okay to, to do the wrong thing if it's for the right reasons? Now, I know in this case, you know, the, the immediate answer is kind of like, well, of course, it, they were deceiving Nazi Germany. Of course, it was okay. They were deceiving Hitler. Of course, it was okay. I understand that. But when, when the situation is not as obvious or the enemy is not as clear, how do we determine that? Like, is it, is it ever okay? Is it okay to sin as long as you're sinning for the right reason? Or is it okay to sin as long as um, you have the, the right intentions with the sin? Or is it even considered sin at that point? And again, I know, like, you might look at this and go, what are you talking about? Why would, why would you even question this? Well, I grew up in an environment uh, where lying was wrong 100% of the time. There's no gray. There's no nuance to this. There's no complexity to even ask the question, is it okay to lie? It has an obvious answer. No, it's never okay to lie. Never, under any circumstances, ever, never, ever, ever. It's always a black and white issue. I don't care what the situation is. I don't care what it is. It's never okay to lie. And we, Revelation 21.8, you lie, you fry. That's, that's a paraphrase of that scripture. But that, I heard that my entire life. You lie, you fry. We had a nursery rhyme about it. Like we sang this, Revelation, Revelation 21.8. Did y'all, does anybody know that song? Liars go to hell, liars go to hell. Burn, 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 burn. <laughs> that stays with you, Okay. Like that, that, that'll stick with you. That you will just never, ever, it's ne there's never any circumstance in which it's okay to lie. It's always sin. It's always wrong. To intentionally deceive another person is always wrong, even if you think you are intentionally deceiving the other person for the right reasons. So the question I had watching Operation Mincemeat and why I thought this might be a good movie to talk about in the movie series is we get to ask the question and answer the question, is it ever okay to lie? I see some of the parents in here are like, well, I'm glad you sent the kids out of the room before we talked about this because I, I'm scared of how you're going to answer this question. And actually, if you Google the question, uh, it's a big debate within Christianity. And, and that's exactly what I did. I just Googled, is it ever okay to lie? And you get all kinds of answers. There, there's kind of two, two main answers to it. There's the moral absolutist, which is how I grew up. And the moral absolutist would say, no, never, under any circumstances. I don't care if you're lying to Hitler. I don't care if you're lying in order to win the war. I don't care if you're lying in order to save lives. Never, ever. It's just moral absolute. It's wrong. You just don't do it. Uh, the other side is kind of the moral relevant side that would say, well, it depends on the situation. <laughs> you know, it, are you lying in order to protect innocent life? Are you lying in order to prevent evil? Are you lying in order to correct an injustice? Well, then in those cases, well, sure, it would be fine. And, and both of them use Scripture uh, to appeal 
to their position. So the moral absolutists, of course, go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. They would say, it's in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. It's in the Ten Commandments. So no, there's never a case in which lying is okay. But then a few books later in Joshua chapter 2, verse 4, Rahab bears false witness when she lies about the Jewish spies who have come to hide and they're investigating the promised land. Rahab lies because they come and say, are you hiding anybody in your house? And she says, no, I'm not. I think they went that way, and she sends them in another direction. And then the New Testament says what she did was motivated by her faith. Look at this, James chapter 2, verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did. What did she do? She lied about the spies she was hiding in her house. Well, she, you know, James says, wasn't that a righteous thing to do? And then in Hebrews, it says, you know, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And so in the New Testament, twice, it gives lying as in a positive light. And this is the same New Testament that tells the story in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, about Ananias and Sapphira being killed because they lied to the church and they lied to the Holy Spirit. And then it's the same New Testament that where Paul writes things in Colossians 3, 9 that says, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. So um, where does that leave us? Is, is it okay? Like, where, where, do you, where do you go with that? Now, interesting to me is the, the, the most famous hypothetical in all of these essays I read this week about, you know, lying and whether or not it was okay. The most famous hypothetical is what would you do in World War II if you were hiding uh, Jewish people in your home and the Nazis showed up and knocked on the door and said, are you hiding anybody in your home? That's that, and that's the one that both sides use that as the most famous hypothetical, like what should you do in that situation? And what was interesting is that after watching this movie, I'm like, that's not really a hypothetical. It's a hypothetical in 2022. It was not a hypothetical in 1942. Some of you are familiar with one of the most famous liars in Christian history, uh, Corey Tinboom. Familiar with her? Corrie Ten Boom um, was, a, was a Dutch woman motivated by her faith. She created a hiding place to protect Jewish people who were being hunted down by the Nazis. And so she purposefully deceived the, the government and purposely violated the laws of her country and purposefully lied, motivated by her faith. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor, a famous Christian pacifist, who was against the war, who also participated in a failed plot to assassinate Hitler. Martin Luther King Jr. was a preacher who purposefully disobeyed the laws of his land. He went against the laws of his land and, and in some pretty clever ways created opportunities to trick overzealous sheriffs into helping accomplish the things that he wanted to get accomplished. Harriet Tubman was another famous liar and deceiver because she operated the Underground Railroad, which deceived and, and you know, violated the laws of her country, but saved millions of lives, well, thousands of lives in the process. So what do you do? Was Corey Timboom right? Was Tubman right? Was King right? You know, what do you do with this? The moral absolutist would say, no, like there was another way to do that. I, I'm, I'm like, and you go through the mental gymnastics, you read some of this, and it's like, 
they would say, well, you know, if you were hiding somebody and the, the Nazis came and knocked on your door, then what you would say is, um, well, you don't have to say anything. As long as you don't say anything, that's not technically lying. So as long as you don't, you don't have to reveal the whole truth, it's not technically lying, so you're, you're safe. Or you could say, uh, yes, I'm hiding Jewish people, but I'm not going to tell you where they are. You could, this is one of the arguments in the, that I read. You know, I'm not going to tell you, you know, it's better to die than to violate a command of God. And, um, of course, none of that, none of that kind of made sense to me. And I, I was trying to piece all that together, and I was thinking that this week, and as I drove into Montgomery and, and um, Birmingham and Selma and Tuskegee and watched people who participated, you know, the history of people who participated in acts of civil disobedience, uh, you know, there was a group of ministers who wrote a letter to Martin Luther King when he was in a Birmingham jail and said, Martin, you need to do the right thing here, and you need to just obey the laws of your land, and you need to back off a little bit, and you need to stop pushing all this, and you just need to let, you know, time, it's, everything's going to be fine if you'll just give it enough time. You need to do the moral thing as a man of God and stop uh, disobeying the laws of your country. And in response, he wrote one of the most famous, you know, Tristes ever, the letter from a Birmingham jail, in which he explained why it was right for him to do, quote, the wrong thing. All of this was kind of going around in my mind, because, again, <laughs> I grew up with nursery rhymes about how wrong this is. And so all of this is going in my mind of, like, how do you, you know, goodness, if you just take the view that, yeah, in certain circumstances it is okay to do wrong, well, goodness, doesn't that lead to, like, this, isn't that a dangerous path to go, isn't that a slippery slope to, to be going down? But at the same time, this absolutist position doesn't seem like, how, how do you solve this? Dr. Peter Kreft was the guy who helped me, and I want to read just a paragraph of what he said. And he, he was asking the question of why do... Why do so many people take an absolutist stance and argue for the wrongness of works by people who are only trying to save a life? And this is what Kreft said. I'm going to show you one line of what he said right here. He said, that this is, and he's trying to explain abs, moral absolutist. He says, I think they are so rightly, rightly afraid of moral relativism that they've wrongly followed into moral legalism and he just <laughs> he just described the denomination I grew up in right there in one sentence they were, they were so rightly afraid of moral relativism like if we give an inch if we say any little thing is okay or wrong goodness where's that going to lead us so they've wrongly followed into moral legalism and he goes on and talks about how there's moral truth and there's moral reality and he says, people in this age have become like computers, not really listening to moral intuition. They deal with abstractions and hypotheticals, not people. And for those who cannot or will not acknowledge that saving Jews from the Nazis using deception was right and good, Kreft says, he's not, you know, he's not a pastor, he's, not, he's kind of blunt. He, he says, Kreft says, if you don't know that, you're morally stupid. And, and moral stupidity comes in two opposite forms. Relativism and legalism. Relativism sees no principles, only people. Legalism sees no people, only principles. And he concludes that perhaps, as Jesus called us to become like the little children, he meant for us to, quote, remember our more simple and innocent moral wisdom. In other words, what, what Kreft is saying in this essay is, we know what's right. 
because we're, we're guided by the Holy Spirit and we, we know what's right to do in situations. That's why when I, you know, you, you follow a story like Operation Mincemeat and for me to even stand up and question, was it right what they did? You know, people are going, like something just feels off because we know what is the right thing to do. We know that Corey Timboom was right in what she did. We know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right in, in standing against um, Hitler and Nazi Germany. We know that, that Dr. King was right. We know that Harriet Tubman was right. Like we, we know these things intuitively, even though they were going against the laws of their land, even though they were purposefully deceiving others, even though they were, in, uh, we know it's the right thing to do because it was the morally right thing to do. And we're reminded when we, when we hear those stories, we're reminded of like Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin. They were doing the, quote, wrong thing in accordance with the laws of their land. And what did they tell the Sanhedrin? We must obey God rather than man. We have a higher moral standard than the, the laws of this country. The laws of this country don't always align with God's moral law. I think we figured that out, right? The laws of no country not always align with God's moral law. So our, we hold God's moral law above any other type of law. That's why I said... Several weeks ago, the Constitution's not my Bible because the Constitution's not a perfect document. The Constitution's not an inspired document. The Bible is an inspired document. The Bible is an authoritative document. And so we hold God's law above all other law. But I think Kreft does a great job of explaining kind of how we go back. and Like, like I grew up in the land of um, moral legalism. Okay? And so moral legalism is that every issue is black and white. There is no gray, there is no nuance, there is no complexity. And it values principle over people. And, and it, it, you know, it, many of you, you know, if you grew up, like one of the issues that we dealt with when I was growing up was the issue of divorce and remarriage. There's a very simple black and white answer to that question. And, and that, was the, that was the way we answered that question. Like it was just, there was, there was no nuance, there was no complexity, and, and we didn't care really if it hurt you, the answer, because the principle was more important than the people. In response to that, many people, including myself, kind of swung the other direction. It was like, we, this, you can't uphold moral legalism forever because there's no room for grace, and if there's no room for grace then that's not Christian. You can't uphold moral legalism forever. And so in, in a pursuit of grace, grace, we swing back. But sometimes we swing the pendulum too far into relativism. And in relativism, it's all gray. And, you know, there's no right answer. There's never any right answer. There's, you know, there's, there's, you uphold people more than principles. And you can't uphold that forever either because there's no room for truth. And I love what uh, Andy Stanley says about it. And it's what we tried to do as a church we do not do it perfectly, I can promise you, but it's what we've tried to do as a church, is to walk the messy middle ground of grace and truth. We want to uphold both. Yeah, we believe there's, there's such a thing as moral truth. We do believe there's such a thing as moral truth, and we want to speak truth. But we also want to recognize that we have to speak it in love, and we have to speak it in gentleness and respect, that we have to, we have to balance grace and truth. And how do we balance those things as, as a people? How do we, how do we balance the, the, these two things? Because if it's all grace and no truth, there's no substance to their faith. All grace and no truth, no substance. If it's all truth and no grace, there's no mercy. And, and, and there's no mercy. I mean, how, how do you as followers of Jesus, how do we never have mercy towards other people? That, that sounds more like the Pharisees than it does the followers of Jesus. And... Um, 
so we have to find a way to, to do both. And the, the verse that kept on my mind this week, not only in this message, but also some of the things I did this week, the verse that just kept coming up to me was Micah. Um, it's a very familiar verse to you about, you know, he's shown you what's good. You know, God has shown you what's good. And what does he require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And I use that one because a lot of people believe, or I don't know if we would say this out loud, but our actions betray us, that justice and mercy are on two opposite ends of the spectrum. You can either practice justice or you can practice mercy, but you can't do both. And I think that's a false dichotomy because the, the New Testament and the Old Testament both say you can act justly and love mercy. Matter of fact, to love mercy is to act justly, but that's a whole other sermon. Um, you can act justly and love mercy. But in all of it, humility is the key. So, that's where Operation Mince Me took me. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for... Um, stories. I'm thankful for stories being told and preserved and um, the purpose of any good story is not only to teach us a moral but to get us to think and to get us to question and to get us to, uh, to process things. And I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to do that with, with brothers and sisters. I'm thankful I have the opportunity to do that with others who believe in, in, in your word and um, I just pray you help us to continue doing that. We don't, we're not always going to get it right. And um, ask for your forgiveness for the times that we get it wrong. But help us to be guided by your spirit to do the right thing. Help us to have the courage to do the right thing in the right situations, regardless of what it may cost us uh, politically or socially or in, in other realms. Help us to just do the right thing. Um, it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Uh, I got one last thing. As I was praying, I thought about uh, John Lewis, good trouble. Uh, that's good trouble. Is there such a thing as good trouble? Yeah, there is. So uh, last thing we're going to do is we've got our giving today, and that is as you leave. Most of you give electronically, so you can use your phones and give that way. Um, or you can go online and give that way, or you, the boxes are along the wall. We've had several, they're like, you've got to mention the boxes because nobody knows where those are. You always mention boxes, but they're just they're right there on the wall if you want to drop right there. And that's for the Connect cards too. That's what we really hope you'll drop in there. A couple other things. What do I got? Oh, uh, yeah, I need to tell you about this. Um, we are opening our church up to a, a homeschool tutorial program. It's called Heart Christian Academy, and it's opening up uh, this fall in August. And they're going to be using our children's ministry wing. And they'll have all of our children's ministry wing Monday through Wednesday. They meet on Mondays and Wednesdays, but we don't want to interrupt their classrooms. So none of those rooms will be available for use from like Sunday night to Wednesday around 3 or 4 o'clock. Um, and they're probably going to put some stuff in our parking lot where they'll store some of their equipment and that kind of thing. Uh, we're renting the space to them, so we're not, it's not a ministry of ours. We're not over anything. The other thing is, though, we're going to change some of our security procedures. So if you come to the office during the week, the doors will be locked. All the doors will be locked. Uh, we're looking at adding some, some enhanced security to all of our doors, which will help us on Sundays too, but it's especially important uh, as this homeschool tutorial group comes in. And so you can find out information about them online. I just wanted to let you know 
that they were coming in so that you knew what was going on when you see that they're meeting at Murray Hills and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, is that one of our ministries? No, but we're, we're providing some space for them. Uh, community groups, there is a meeting that takes place in five minutes for all of our community group leaders. So if you're an existing community group leader or you're interested in becoming one, you could come to this meeting. We're going to give you just a quick 10-minute overview of what the fall season for groups is going to look like. So that's going up at room 100 at 1040. And the last movie of the series is next Sunday. I don't know. Do I have a picture of it? No. The last movie of the series is next Sunday. It's called Rise. And it's on Disney+. Plus. If you've seen, It's the story of, I wish I had a picture of it because I wouldn't have to try to pronounce the name. It's the story of Akinta Tumbo. The Akintatumbo brothers. I think I got it. Uh, the, the, the three guys in the NBA, Thanos and Giannis, and there's one more. Um, it's a really good story. Really, really good story. Ebony's going to be preaching that message for us. And so watch the movie Rise. It's, it's, a, it's a true story, and it's, it's a great movie. So uh, small group leaders, do not talk to anybody. Say hello to anybody. Go straight to your meeting. The rest of y'all hang out and talk as long as you want to uh, until about 11 o'clock. <laughs> Thanks for being here. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.